debtors. Next week, Adam will be starting a new series with us. I hope, our hope and our prayer is that as we've gone through this um, study together on the Lord's Prayer, our hope is that it will help you to pray. Not just learn a little bit more about prayer, but it will help you to engage in prayer. As you read Paul's epistles, often as he'll teach and he'll preach to the people he begins, he finishes that praying for the people that what he says they'll understand, they'll be able to put into action. So the same things he preaches to them, he prays for them. We try to do that for you as elders, as what we're going through in the text, that we pray that for you, that the Lord would take it and plant it in your heart. And so our hope and our goal and our prayer for you is that coming out of the series, it's not just now you have some more facts about the Lord's Prayer, but that you would be empowered, you would be strengthened, you would be given some direction, some encouragement, some conviction in your prayer life. None of us arrive and totally master, hey, we've, we're where we should be in prayer. I think we all recognize that. We pray that by the Spirit going forward, the Lord will use the Word, use these sermons to help you in your prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For me, as I look at the different petitions, there are six different petitions in the Lord's Prayer. You said this is the sixth one, the last one we'll deal with. To me, this is on the surface, maybe the most confusing, but after a little bit of scratching, it becomes a fairly simple petition. It's a little confusing because what are we exactly asking for when we say, lead us not into temptation? Are we assuming that generally God is going to lead us into temptation, and so we need to ask him not to? It kind of feels like that. It sounds like that a little. If you forget to pray this, can you just assume now God's going to lead you into temptation? Well, we know that's not the case. James chapter 1 and verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. All right, so God isn't going to tempt you. The word temptation now, almost universally, or at least as we think of it, it almost always has a very negative connotation, doesn't it? It has the idea of enticing one to evil or enticing one to sin. If you think of maybe like the cartoon picture of it as uh, you're sitting there looking and you have like the little white angel on this shoulder and the little red pitchforked devil on this shoulder, and he's encouraging you, he's enticing you to you know, whatever it is you're not supposed to do. Go ahead and do that. And that enticement. So we have that kind of picture of temptation. Uh, yet within the text, there is a range of understanding, a range of meaning of, of what temptation can mean. It can have the idea of testing or trial. If you're into this sort of thing, the Greek word for temptation, perosmos, is really just a neutral word. It doesn't have a negative or a positive moral connotation to it. So in James 1.13, for instance, it uses that idea that God is not going to tempt you. If you were to back up one verse to James chapter 1 and verse 12, the verse talks about blessed is the man who perseveres under testing or under trial. It's the same word there. So we think, okay, now maybe then we take temptation 
And instead of thinking in that negative sense, let's put it more into the positive sense. So we're saying, you know, Father, lead us not into testing or into trial. Well, I think we can't end right there either because the New Testament is very clear that testing and trial are absolutely necessary for every believer that we're going to walk through them. Jesus walked through them, and as a follower of Jesus, we are guaranteed to walk through them. They're necessary for our growth, for our faith, for our perseverance. And so something that we are promised is going to be part of our lives, promised that is necessary for us, that is going to be helpful for us in our perseverance, are we then to pray, don't bring us into testing? Well, I don't think that that is in itself a full and a good understanding. So you're kind of asked, okay, so what exactly is our petition here? If we can assume God's not going to lead us into temptation, but we know he's going to lead us into trial and testing, and this word kind of has that range, we can understand it in a positive, neutral way, depends on the context and, and, and what you do with this testing or temptation or trial that gives it its morality, positive or negative. So what do we do? How do we understand it? And here's how I think we can make sense of this this petition. is by understanding that every day, every moment of each day, is the possibility of temptation, testing, trial for you. Moment by moment, you're faced with circumstances, with decisions, with... Uh, whatever comes in your life, and moment by moment, you are faced with the choice of belief or unbelief, of obedience or disobedience. There might be crisis moments in your life where you feel that temptation, that weight and pull of sin in a specific aspect of your life bearing heavily down on you. And you can easily kind of point out in that moment, I'm under a, a time of temptation. Or maybe in testing or trial, you can easily point out that moment in your life of kind of a crushing weight or a burden. And it's very clear to see I'm at a crossroads right now. There is testing, there is trial taking place. The scripture is clear that moment by moment by moment, choices are being made for you of belief or unbelief, obedience or disobedience. I mean, you think about it. When your alarm goes off, the decisions begin there. The trials, the testing begins there. The first person you interact with in the morning, if that's a husband or a wife, or, or maybe it's on your way to work, maybe it's on the bus or another driver, um, maybe it's at work with that super fun coworker. Temptation, trial, testing, moment by moment. In the things we think of as lighter and not so serious, and in the things that are quite real and serious in our, in our lives. Darkness is all around us. We live in an age that is passing away. Citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but in the midst of this age. It's naive to think that you're not going to face temptation, trial, and testing Scripture tells us that the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Sin is deceptive. It comes at us in, in 
forms that feel so enticing, that feel like they would be so fulfilling for us. We have a sin principle that dwells within us that is deceitful. And this prayer then becomes, as I walk through this life, as we come into the temptation, the trial, God, keep me from jumping into it. Keep me from jumping into sin. Keep me from being overwhelmed by the evil one. Deliver me from it. Keep me from buying the lie and jumping after sin, of excusing us, of of downplaying the consequences and going hard after it. I think Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 gives us a little bit of direction in how to understand it. John 17 and verse 15, as he would pray to the Father, he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Don't take them out of the world. Not that trial and temptation and testing and all of that is going to disappear, but in the midst of it, protect them Keep them from the evil one. So the Lord's Prayer here teaches us that we are dependent on the sovereign guidance of God through every trial and every test and every temptation of life. It is a blatant recognition that we need God if we are going to overcome the evil one. In salvation, to erase that debt that stands against us, And then day by day by day that our faith is not shipwrecked. Our plea needs to be for God to help us overcome the evil one. So the prayer could say, Today I will stand before innumerable temptations. And that's what my life is. Endless choices between belief and unbelief. Between obedience and disobedience. But mighty God forbid that I would yield. Hold me back from stepping inside the temptation. I want to take a step back and look at the Lord's Prayer. Have you, I hope that you have been instructed as much in what to pray, just as much as that has instructed you, that you would be instructed in how to pray in this Lord's Prayer. That you've seen and grasped and grown to realize the focus that is the Lord's Prayer. It's not a wandering, aimless conversation, but there is focus. There is a purpose and an intensity. There is a a trust and a desperation within the Lord's Prayer. There is overwhelming depth and yet real simplicity in the Lord's Prayer. Can you appreciate the simplicity of it? It's not this kind of real weird, hard way that you have to approach God. There is a simplicity in this prayer for facing the most confusing of life circumstances. And yet there is a desperateness in it. As you go through it, it starts with these three petitions focused squarely and solely on God. And that should be the attitude and the direction and the approach. approach. And it starts with, hallowed be thy name. All glory be to God. Do your work as you promise you will of bringing glory to your name. It starts there. It always starts there. 
That is God's concern. That is our concern. Then how can you use me? How can you use us? How can you use us as a congregation in bringing glory to your name and making much of your name? Use us however you can because we need God to accomplish it. We need God to accomplish it through us. So hallowed be your name, and then it moves to let your kingdom come. Might the king reign with with might and with justice. Might he rule with equity. Might we now, in an age that is passing away, live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. What does the heavenly kingdom require? Those fruits of the spirit of joy, of mercy, of righteousness, of peace. Might we pursue those things. Even though we walk in the midst of all kinds of chaos, and all kinds of false offers of hope and joy. And where peace doesn't reign. And yet the specific and the focused, desperate and confident cry is, let your kingdom come right now in my life. Might that be seen. Let your will be done. How on earth as it is in heaven, as it is accomplished perfectly in heaven, might we see that take place on this earth? Might you do that through your church? May you do it through us individually, through us corporately, to love mercy, kindness, hope, pursue those things. And that's the prayer, and that's the focus, and that's where it starts. And now as it transitions now into man and his need, we don't leave God and hallowing his name and his kingdom coming and his will being done. Now we say if there's any aspect in which we are to be part of that, then we need daily provision. Today, provide our daily bread. Give us what is needed. Point us in the right direction. Show us what is needed to obey your will. To live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. To bring honor and not shame to your name. And the confession is, if you don't provide today what is needed, I won't make it. And give me provision for today and faith to believe that the mercies and provisions will be new tomorrow. Even if it seems confusing and chaotic, give me what is needed for today. There's a simplicity, yet a desperateness in that. When everything else is chaos, here is the prayer. Give me what is needed for the today. And then it moves on. Give me pardon. Forgive me my sins. Forgive this debt that mounts up against us. Assuming the one is, is justified, this isn't a sense in which we're asking for salvation to be restored. It's a sense in which we have offended our Father. We have not brought Glory to his name with some of our actions and some of our thoughts. And we have not been acting according to the kingdom and obeying his will. And so we say, forgive us our debts. And we're reminded that the kingdom of God is for forgiven people. And that's it. And God alone forgives. And a forgiven person is one who is forgiving one another. As much as you love mercy and cherish it for yourself, you should be quick to show it to others. Mercy and forgiveness. And so the confession is, if my sins aren't forgiven today, this daily need, I'm not going to make it. And so the same theme now comes to this third, this third petition about ourselves, sixth petition overall, and that is, Lord, 
don't let me get lost in the sin. Don't let me be overcome by the evil one, but help me be an overcomer. Because God, I need you in this moment. Just like I need daily bread and daily forgiveness, I need daily protection from myself, from sin, from Satan. And that is the cry of the heart. That is what is being petitioned here at the end. One moment without him and we would be lost. And so we cry to him for protection. We know that he is sovereign. We don't doubt that in his leading of us. We know that he is gracious and kind. And yet we are called to confess our weakness and our need for him and to call out and help. All right. So that is what we're talking about when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One quick note on that evil. I might say evil or evil one. Either one is probably is fine how you say that there. Um, the evil, another little Greek thing, evil is generally just kind of a, a neutral word in the sense of it's not masculine, it's not feminine, it's just a, a neuter. And so you approach it and it talks about general evil. The ending here has a masculine ending. And so typically what I mean is not just evil, but the evil man, the evil one. And so you'll see it different ways. Uh, either one, I think, is, is fine. Evil, the evil one <clears throat> that we're asking deliverance from. So I think four things then we need to recognize, and we'll go through these quickly then we'll celebrate the Lord's table. If this is our prayer, if this is our petition, what we just described, first, it means that we recognize our weakness. It, we recognize our weakness. That is to say that this really should be the basic instinct of the Christian life, to cry out to God for protection. Recognizing your weakness that you in your own strength, cannot overcome the evil one. There's that Martin Luther song, um, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Uh, all of our striving in our own strength is losing. And there is a recognition of our weakness. We sang... Um, the song, or we're going to sing the song, Lord, I need you. It says, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. This should be the spiritual instinct as we respond to life. As we see the temptation and the trial and the testing all around us, is to turn away from ourselves and turn to God. I think often we we can realize our weakness in other areas of life. You know, when you get, when you face an, an illness or a sickness or you face a really tough decision, you just, you realize your finite understanding. You realize your physical weakness. But sometimes we're not as quick to realize our spiritual weakness and dependence on God. And we ignore all the means that God gives to strengthen us all of the armor of God that is provided for us, the word, prayer, 
sacraments, fellowship one with another, worship together. We ignore it because we don't understand our own weakness and we think we can do it without God's means and God's promised you can't. This is what the Psalms are all about, these cries for protection, that he would be, God would be our hedge, that he would be our refuge, he would be our hiding place, he would be our shield, he would be our fortress. God, protect us. So you recognize your weakness. Secondly, you need to recognize your enemy. Recognize your enemy. <clears throat> I think one of the greatest dangers and deceptions that we face, the devil faces, is that we we don't correctly identify our enemy. We're quick to put like a person's face or a specific circumstance with our enemy. So we think, okay, what's stealing my, my happiness? What's stealing my peace of mind? What's stealing my joy and success? And it's maybe it's this person or this event or maybe it's this physical ailment or this, this weakness in our life. And that becomes the enemy. And we think, <clears throat> if I could just overcome m- my boss then I would have success and happiness and peace of mind. Or if I could just overcome cancer, if I could just get that behind me, that's my enemy. That's what I need to overcome. And we quickly put a face or something physical with our enemy. Ephesians 6.12 would tell us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The battle is spiritual. (laughs) Because what is at stake is more than just your peace of mind or your promotion or your happiness. What's at stake is your soul. What needs to be overcome is not just cancer. It's not just that the tumor would shrink or the white cell count would be what it needs to be. What needs to be overcome is that Satan would not overcome you in the midst of it. That you would turn from God and not believe. That you would look somewhere else for your faith and your hope and your joy. We too quickly pinpoint an enemy that's physical, that we can see, and we don't realize the real enemy. Satan walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Your own flesh, that sin principle that resides within, that is so quick to flee after immediate satisfaction, that's so quick to excuse sin. A world in which we live in, which is totally sold out and celebrating anti-God, anti-Bible, And you become blinded and deceived by it. We're told to recognize our enemy. Thirdly, so recognize your weakness, recognize your enemy. Thirdly, then, is to recognize the war. If you're not used to hearing this kind of stuff, it might feel like, wow, this is such over-the-top language. Just, like, chill a little bit on all of the... All, the, all these big words. The Christian life is described in a lot of ways. It's described as like an agricultural metaphor. You're a farmer or, or you're a landowner and you're, you're 
tilling the soil and and you see this metaphor for describing the Christian life. Or you see it in the family and they'll use the family as a metaphor or different uh, as a steward, as, as a manager. But when it comes to dealing, when it comes to teaching us about dealing with the sin principle within, the metaphor changes to battle and war. Not exclusively, but very quickly. The language used is not moderate. It's over-the-top language. It's battle, it's bloody, it's gruesome. There's no, like, messing around or just, you know, being balanced with it. It tells you to put to death, to kill. I mean, it starts in the Old Testament, and you see kind of this, like, weird, bloody sacrifice that needs to be had for sin. I mean, you're killing these bulls, you're, there's blood being sprinkled, there's animals being slain. Like, what is the whole deal with all this? Overcoming sin, dealing with the sin within, is a bloody battle. <laughs> and then it leads you to the cross. Jesus Christ suffering, dying, bleeding, being tortured, beard pulled out crown of thorns, dying on the cross, hideous torture to overcome sin. It's not just like whatever. It's gruesome. And then we are told that we are crucified with Christ. We are told to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are told to kill the sin. We're told to die daily to that sin principle within us. The language is aggressive and over the top. And it's aggressive and over the top because, again, your soul is at stake. Read Revelation 16, 17, 18 sometime. Revelation 16, you have the the bull judgments where God's those final judgment where God is showing forth his wrath. And then you have Babylon who enters the scene. You have this picture of, of the world and its system and those sold into it and those sold into sin. And you see that it is bent on destroying you, the destruction of your soul. Sin is serious. It's not just like, an, you know, okay, so I gratified myself for a moment and whatever. It wants to own you and destroy you. That's what it seeks to do. And whether you're fighting against it or you've given yourself over to it, it still wants to destroy you. That's what Revelation tells us. That's why in Romans 8.13, there's been several books and, and thoughts given to this idea of killing the flesh. If by the Spirit you put to death, you kill the flesh, then you will live. It's by the Spirit. But it is all-out war on sin. And sometimes we recognize our weakness, we recognize the enemy, and okay, I get it, the war, the battle, but seriously? And so again... When that mentality sets in, we start removing ourselves from the means God gives us of fighting that sin. Word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship with believers. 
I mean, is that the application to every sermon here? I'll go ahead and spoil it. Yes. <laughs> but those are God's ordained means for us. And if you don't recognize your weakness, and if you don't recognize who your enemy is, and you don't recognize that this is war, this is battle, then it, it, you just become flippant about engaging in these things. Does it mean that every time you come to church and hear a message, it's going to be like this overwhelming experience for you, and you're just going to be happy, happy, happy? No. <laughs> I mean, there's a certain monotony to church life. I'm a pastor, and even I realize that. Yet it is God's ordained means of sitting under the word and being fed and nourished and strengthened by it, of looking out for one another. That is why things that seem weird and archaic, like the idea of a church discipline, or uh, the idea of, of the sacraments, of remembering the gospel in this weird, it can seem so weird to someone outside. You don't realize that what is that soul what is at stake is your soul. You don't realize the sin, the devil, they don't want to just mess around with it and get a little piece of it. It wants to destroy you, to devour you. And that is the prayer. God, deliver me from the evil one. Without you, I'm overcome immediately. Help me be an overcomer. With you, I'll be deceived and I'll be in the middle of it. Without you, I will. With you, I will be delivered. There's a picture of this keeps coming to my mind of what our attitude should be. Yesterday, the Beakleys hosted a thing at their house, a prayer time. Um, we learned some about the foster system uh, here in Pittsburgh and different ways we can engage. It was a really good, fun time. Um, but if you know Noble St. Lawrence, he's like the little one, two years old, with the curly hair. So there's Noble is standing in the kitchen, and the Beakleys have a dog named Tag. And so if this is Noble, this is Tag. He's a big chocolate lab, a big dog. And at this, like to that point, I guess the kids didn't know there was a dog. All of a sudden, the dog comes around, and Noble sees the dog. And immediately, I think, Randy, either Caleb or Ariel, and wanted off the ground. <clears throat> and I thought of that last night as I was finishing, of realizing his weakness. And that dog was had him by 60 pounds, realizing the enemy tag at that point, <laughs> and fleeing for deliverance to someone who could hold them. And it's that kind of basic instinct of being, seeing sin and taking it seriously and not giving it place in your life where it just becomes, that's the normal, it's okay. Everyone does it, you know, I keep away from the big stuff, but this stuff, and the cry is deliver us, recognizing that it's war. And then finally, recognize your deliverer. Ultimately, it is God we are crying to. It is God we are trying to for deliverance. And he isn't a mean, judgmental God who's going to like, you know, let's go back to the noble illustration. It's not like when he came running, Ariel just looked at him and laughed. That would be messed up. God doesn't do that to us when we flee to him and run to him, ask for deliverance, just toys with us and 
No, he takes pity on us. He is our refuge. He is our strong tower. Again, return to Romans 8.32. He's already given us the Son. That's the greatest gift. With that, everything is promised that we need for life and godliness. He has already set you free. He has already overcome the evil one. As we move towards Easter, what a victorious time. He's overcome sin and darkness and death. It's been overcome for you. And now he gives you and he works all things, Romans 8, 37, in order to make you more than a conqueror in the midst of every trial and test and temptation. That is Jesus' prayer for you to the Father. God, don't take them out of this world, but don't let them be overcome by the evil one. Jesus Christ mediates for you with that as his request to the Father. When you flee to the Father, he will protect you. He will overcome. And you're going to mess up, and you're going to sin, and you're going to confess, and you keep fleeing to the Father. You don't ignore the means that God has given you the body of Christ, prayer, a word, fellowship with one another. We close in prayer as we transition into our time in the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for 